So I'm the master of having too many things going on at one time, and I've tried to avoid this, but this series, short series of messages has been planned for some time. We're going to break from a barely begun Hebrews series to talk about marriage and family issues. I like to do that between Mother's Day and Father's Day, uh, if not annually, at least every other year. And uh, again, I, I tried to not have one starting just before the other. The good news is that Jesus is still better, and he will be better when we take up Hebrews again. But for the next few weeks, I want to talk about marriage and family issues because I think they are so incredibly important to the body of Christ. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about marriage and family and the gospel. So instead of turning this morning to the book of Hebrews, I'm going to invite your attention to what I believe to be one of the most important passages in the scripture when it comes to marriage and family, that being Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. As you find your way there, I want to invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, records, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The question before us, and it seems an appropriate one in light of so much confusion at the present hour, is what it takes to make a family. What constitutes a family? How is a family comprised? And maybe, maybe even beyond the basic component parts of a family, what attitudes or principles underlie or function as foundational to the family? Obviously, the family is fathers and mothers and children, etc., even extended family. But beyond that, what is required of us as hus husbands and wives and mothers and fathers to be the family that God intends for us to be. Clearly, God has set the boundaries and provided the parameters for biblical marriage and family. And my exhortation to you this morning is that it is best for us when we observe the command or observe the boundaries that God has established for marriage. What I'm driving at is 
This is good for you. I, I know that there are those who have this vision of God in which he is the wicked taskmaster who is prohibiting us from doing things that would otherwise be fun. But that is not the nature of our God at all. In fact, these boundaries have been established for our well-being. When the structure, when the order that God has instituted for the family is observed, it maximizes our joy, not robs us. It heightens our satisfaction and fulfillment, not limits it. God is the creator and the designer of all mankind and therefore knows what is in the best interest of his people. In society as a whole, even apart from a full gospel heart acceptance of Jesus, this basic structure, what is patterned in our passage, is good for the world around us. What does it take to make a family? Our passage offers us a number of principles, but there are four that I want us to focus on in the time that we have together this morning. Verse 22 speaks specifically to wives. This is probably the most culturally unacceptable verse that I could read today, right? <laughs> wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But that's not the heaviest command in the passage, in my estimation. That one comes down in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Not just love her in a generic or general sense, but love her like Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. The office or the role of the wife and the husband spoken to specifically. Fathers, mothers, and children addressed in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Look there briefly. Children, obey your parents as you would the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, mother which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Children, your rebelliousness, even in those teenage years, is not a rite of passage or just the thing that some kids go through. It is an act of rebellion not only against your parents, but against your God. It is a sin against the holy God to defy the instruction of your mother and father. Parents, it is incumbent upon you that you go about the training and admonition of your children in a very specific way. Verse 4 says, Fathers, don't stir up, your anger, uh, stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Another translation says, don't exasperate them. I'm not entirely sure yet what that means. Maybe you should talk to my children. There are... Uh, each of the offices within the family are addressed. And here, here's sort of an underlying principle, and we're going to go elsewhere for affirmation in this area. Every family must have order. Our families, if they are to be the kind of families, and for that matter, our marriages, if they're to be the kind of marriages God intends them to be, must have order. God intends that there be order, that there be a certain structure. God has organized society around the family, and God has organized or ordered the family in a very specific way. 
Down in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, the Bible cites a verse from the book of Genesis. It's there in Genesis that God creates mankind as he is in his image and institutes marriage. Verse 31 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, often in the New Testament, when there is a quote from the Old Testament, it has the effect of importing the full context of that quote into the conversation. For example, this morning, if, if I say to you, I once was blind, but now I see, you could, first of all, you could have finished the sentence, right? Second of all, I have just brought into our conversation, I have imported all of the precious memories and every line, every stanza of that great hymn, Amazing Grace, all of the nostalgia attached to that hymn, I've just imported into our conversation with a single reference. And often in the New Testament, when the Old Testament is cited, it has the same function. All of the teaching of Genesis 1 and 2 is now imported into, brought to bear in this conversation Paul has with the church at Ephesus. The Bible says in Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Further, it says the earth was without form. It was void and formless. And God entered into that void and formless cosmos and began to do something very specific. Now, there are a lot of ways to misrepresent and a lot of misunderstanding with regards to Genesis 1 and 2, but one of the things that is most often overlooked and I believe to be one of the most important features of Genesis 1 and 2 is the extent to which God enters into chaos and brings order, brings structure, brings organization. For instance, God enters into this without form and void existence and separates day from night, land from sea. He, he not only creates but identifies and distinguishes between the species, those of the land, those of the sea, and those of the air. And in the apex of his creative work, he creates man in his own image. And ultimately, after it is clearly determined both by God and by Adam that there is no partner suitable to him taking a rib from his side, he creates Eve and thereby separates, distinguishes between male and female. They are distinct beings. And oh, how different they are. And there he says, after Adam makes his love at first sight speech, it's not terribly romantic in our English translations, but it must have been romantic in the heart and mind of Adam. This is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. She shall be called woman because she was taken forth from man. God says in the conclusion of that chapter, as it's cited here, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. From the very beginnings of marriage and family, there was a biblical pattern. There was order. There was structure. There was organization for marriage and family. We have all of its offices identified in our passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 5 and further in chapter 6. And we have that order prescribed even at the institution of marriage and family in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. 
Paul affirms this interest of our God in order, in structure, in organization later in 1 Corinthians where he speaks into that spiritual gifts issue. Everyone's kind of going crazy at church. And Paul says, God is not the author of confusion, but of order. And indeed, he is. The ability of God to bring order in the midst of chaos is demonstrated at any number of places along the way. In fact, what Jesus does in Mark chapter 4, when he stands in the midst of a wind-tossed sea and says, peace, be still, is to echo the experiences of God the Father in the beginning when he brought peace, calmness, order in the midst of the chaos that preexisted God's great creative work. What we're watching unfold around us in our culture today, in society at large, is a departure from the order, from the structure, from the organization that God intends not only for the marriage, but also for the family and for society in general. And the product of this departure is what you'll watch in the nightly news. The order, the pattern, the structure that God has ordained for the family is not intended to constrain, to bind us, or rob us of some greater joy. It is in our best interest, and it is for our good. And if we are to be the marriages and the families that God intends us to be, this order must be observed. Now, that's the first thing I want you to see. And and I, I want to say this as strongly as I can. This order, this family structure... Is, is essential. In fact, it is a fundamental human need. You need it, and I need it. Brandy and I have been foster parents for about four years now, if my math is correct, maybe closer to five at this point, but for some time. And, and we've been able to be the host family for a number of children through the years, and some for some pretty extended stays. You simply cannot have conversations about the well-being of those children in the Child Protective Services system without talking about how desperately they need stability, order, and structure in their life. And the foolishness of us to think that that's an experience, a need that is unique to childhood. That is not a uniquely childlike human need. That is a basic, fundamental, shared across mankind, human need. We need order and structure. And in the absence of that order and structure, chaos inevitably ensues. Emotionally, spiritually, even physically, we are hurt by the absence of this order observed in our life. We need this. And so what God has said and what has been observed for thousands of years cannot be quickly dismissed without catastrophic consequences in our life and the lives of those around us. Every family needs order. Here's a second observation from our passage. Every member of the family must understand their responsibilities. Now note Every member of the family is of equal value. In fact, every member of the family is equal in the sense in which we often think of equality. But every member of the family is not the same. 
Every member of the family is not the same. Equal does not always mean same. Every member of the family must understand the responsibilities unique to the office they hold within the family. And they're enumerated in our passage. Look back to verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I've acknowledged that this is terribly culturally unacceptable, and I get all of that, but I would have you to note that this is not the pastor's message this morning. I've merely read the text at this point. And yet there's every reason for the culture to object to what is clearly articulated in the passage before us. And I get the fact that there are a variety of misrepresentations of this particular passage, and I have seen it abused in a variety of different ways. For those of you more patriarchal-minded men, I would have you to note that what is said in verses 22 through 24 is just an expansion on what Paul said in verses 18 through 21. Back in verse 18, Paul said, Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Spirit. In other words, don't allow that your life be controlled by external influences or even an external influence that you have now made internal by consumption. Don't be filled with wine in which, in which is much dissipation or reckless action, but be filled with God's Holy Spirit. Let your actions, let your words, let your behavior be dictated to you, be directed for you by the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. And then verse 19 through 21 describes for us what this begins to look like. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. Give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And so what is stated in verses 22 and following is an explanation for us as to how we can submit one to another. But that does not negate or undermine what is clearly articulated again in verse 22, which is a commandment to wives to submit to their own husbands. Now, Again, this is not some kind of overpowering, domineering, patriarchal understanding of submission. I've seen this work itself out. It's an ugly thing. I, I shared with an earlier service, I, of course, I lived with my grandparents. Most of you know that by now. And if, if I had a nickel, if I had a nickel for every time my grandpa rattled that tea glass and said, Dot! and rattled it one more time, I could just retire tomorrow. And it just burned me up. It just made me mad. And, but she did it, and she did it with joy, and it didn't bother her nearly as much as it did me, apparently. She continued to put up with it for years and years and years. So. But that is not what this passage is all about, right? Like, we're clear. That is not what this passage is all about. I've also seen a great deal of reluctance on the part of ladies to submit to their husbands because, frankly, they weren't worthy of a lot of respect and submission. Now, that does not negate, again, the force of what Paul has prescribed in this passage, but it is a note to those of us who are husbands and fathers 
that we ought to strive in all of our ways to be worthy of respect, to be trustworthy, to be reliable, to be responsible, attending to the best interest of our wives and our children. My experience has been that in so much as there is a husband who is genuinely striving to love his wife as Christ loved the church, you'll usually find a wife who is glad to submit to his authority within the home. Wives are here to submit to their husbands. Now, this doesn't mean that you continue to ride or, in the words of the Proverbs, to nag until your way is gotten or to go the way of, of passive aggression until your want or wish is satisfied in some kind of way. Do you know the proverb says it's better to live on top of the house than it is to live inside the house with a nagging wife? I used to quote that a lot. I, I've learned in my age to be quieter about that. <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. It's pretty straightforward. Then the heavy command, in my estimation, comes in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Men, you are to love your wife like Jesus loved the church. Now, I, I, sometimes I feel like being a husband and a father is unfair, and I've come to accept that when it feels unfair, it's probably a good indication for me, right? Like sometimes I come home and, I, and, and, and the house is a mess and my supper's not ready and it's been a long day and them knucklehead boys playing that Xbox and nothing is like I wanted it to be. And I think, I have been at work all day and these people don't appreciate anything. And I think right then, when I think that thought, and I'm just telling you the judgment honest truth, I think, well, I'm probably in a pretty good place. Because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And men, God did not give you your wife or entrust the children to you he has entrusted so that they could live as subjects to your authority or be in constant service to your whim or wish. Rather, he, you've been given, you've been given, you've been given to be of service to the well-being of your family. There ought to be a sense in which we feel as though at times this is unfair because that's what we do. We pour ourselves out for the well-being of our of our home and our family, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for her that she might be washed by the water of his word, presented as holy and blameless without spot or blemish. In essence, this is what Paul describes. We are to take the hand of our bride on the day we say our I do. And as a follower of Christ, it ought to be the hand of another believing bride, right? We are to take her young hand in ours, saying our I do's, committed to walk with her as we walk with Jesus. Over the course of our life, drawing ever closer to the one who bled and died for us. 
We are to do everything we can possibly do to see that she grows in grace and matures in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the end of our life or hers, whichever comes first, we are to put her now aged hand in the hands of the Savior, Jesus Christ, entrusting her care solely unto him as a better, more faithful follower of Jesus than we found her in the beginning. That's what the Apostle Paul describes here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Here, here's what I want you to get and see, and oh, we've got to see this that every office within the family has unique responsibilities. Unique responsibilities. Now, they may be shared in some kinds of ways, right? Uh, obviously, the headship is granted to the husband here. There may be authority and responsibility that's embraced and accepted and shared by the wife. There's a mutual submission, as we've already talked about in our passage. But there are responsibilities that are unique to each office within the family. And we are at our best when we are operating within the unique responsibilities assigned to each of us within the family unit. We are operating outside of the image of God in us when we step outside of these boundaries, outside of these parameters. And the only thing that can result from our breaking the boundaries God has prescribed for us is, is a return to the very chaos that God sought to bring order and structure into. That's all it can result in. Anytime there is a break from the biblical pattern, it will result in chaos. But the observation of what God has prescribed in us ultimately serves our good, our best interest. It is good for us to walk in the precepts that God has assigned unto us. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? This is for our good. Now, we've said a family must have order. We've said, secondly, every member of a family must understand their responsibilities. Here's the third thing. Every member of the family must understand the expectations of others in the family. This is not an observation that is new or unique to me, but I want you to look at verse 33. And here Paul says, to sum up, each of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. There's never a verse in the Bible that says, husbands, respect your wives. There's never a verse in the Bible that says, wives, love your husbands. Wives don't need to be told to love their husbands. That's just what they do. And men don't need to be told to respect their wives. It's just what they do. Now, there are departures from that, but those are especially depraved instances. For the most part, men will respect those around them. And for the most part, women are inclined to love those around them, especially those who are in their care. God is speaking here to what we're inclined toward, to our strengths, and here in verse 33, to our weaknesses. Husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect your husband. It speaks to expectations, like what we are to be looking for in one another. Let me explain what I mean, perhaps, further. I often counsel with couples who come in quite frustrated because he is doing for her what he wants her to do for him, and she is doing for him what she wants him to do for her, and these two strangely different ships will never meet in the night. You have to understand 
that although your spouse, your even with regards to your children, they are equal to you, but they're not the same. We're just not the same people. Now, I don't, I don't care how much propaganda you are fed. Men and women have never been the same, and we will never be the same. And there's, 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 there's no amount of indoctrination that is ever going to change that clearly observable reality in the world around us. It's just the facts. For all of the talk of following science and common sense, we seem to have left all of that behind. We're just different. We're just wired differently. And men, if you're trying to satisfy your wife in ways that would satisfy you, I will guarantee you, you are going to come up short every single time. And wives, if you're trying to float the boat of your husband in the ways that would bring you joy and satisfaction, he's probably going to be greatly dissatisfied when all is said and done. We are just different creatures. It would be a good thing for virtually all families in our body to sit down and to have healthy conversations about what their expectations are one for another. Most have no idea, and, and, they're, and they're bound to a lifetime of arguing, of bickering about the same stuff over and over and over again. You're going to have fights and disagreements as husbands and wives, as families, but make sure somebody wins. Resolve the issue. And my theory is, if when you come to these points of disagreement, if you can work them out, then that's one less potential disagreement that you might have on the next day. And so the longer we're at this thing, the better it really ought to get. We're not circling the drain as married folks and families, right? We're climbing the mountain, and every step along the way, with each day that passes, the view gets a little better and a little better in so much as we're observing the needs of those around us and doing all within our power to minister to or to address, to serve those needs. It'd be a good thing to ask of one another, what do you expect of me? What, what am I expected to bring to the table here? What makes you most happy? And I, I'll help you out a little bit, ladies and gentlemen, wives. We, we, we don't, I know y'all think we know. We don't have, we don't know, we don't know what y'all are thinking. <laughs> we don't know what y'all want. Uh, we don't know where y'all want to eat this afternoon. We don't know what you wanted for Mother's Day. We don't, we don't know any of it. We don't, we, we, we just, just explain it to us like we were five years old, and then you'll be safe, right? Amen. And although you are a little better at this than us men are, you really don't get us either. The problem is you're far more convinced you do than we are. <laughs> at least we know we're ignorant. You think you got it figured out. It would be a good thing for husbands and wives, and even with the children as a part of those conversations, to talk about what you need from one another, to talk about what your expectations of one another really are. Our children have expectations of us. And their expectations are not being shaped exclusively within the home. They're being shaped outside as well. There's not a mom or dad here that has a child that's old enough to talk that hasn't heard, but so-and-so's mom lets him fill in the blank. Because their expectations for us are being shaped outside of the home, television and school and work and play and even sometimes at church. It'd be a good thing to talk about what we need from one another, to have a healthy, calm-headed, cool conversation about what the real needs are, about what the goals for our family are, and how it is 
that we can get there. Every member of the family must understand the expectations of others in the family. You start by understanding the responsibilities unique to your office within the family. And then the next step where you really get into the weeds and begin to flesh this thing out in some practical ways is by having conversations about what the expectations are. And listen, they may look differently. Uh, families are organized differently on some level than they used to be, and sometimes our responsibilities outside the home mean some shifting and, and shaking and adjustments can be made. All of those things are perfectly acceptable. That doesn't necessarily mean we break from the prescribed pattern that God has set for us in the Scripture. It just means that our life is a little bit unique, and there are going to be different periods of time. And listen, I thought I, had, I thought I had parenting pretty well figured out. I had this thing beat, and then we hit like the teenage years. And then we, then we hit like the teenage years with, with two, basically. And then, then you don't have a life at all. You just chase your children from one point to the next, and you sleep very little like when they were really small children. That we never get this thing figured out, and everything is always changing. But if, if you're not having these conversations, you're going to find yourself in a very unhealthy place. Here's the fourth thing, and I'm going to finish with this. And not only does every family need order, to understand their responsibilities and to understand the expectations of others. Every family really needs Jesus. Every family really needs Jesus. I, I can't imagine navigating married life and family life without Jesus. I, I just have a tendency to not be a very pleasant person sometimes, you know. Like, I, I, I can put on a good face out with you guys, you know, but I get lazy face. I call it lazy face and lazy mouth at home. I, I, have, to, I have to be, Brandy tells me my tone needs work. I don't know about all this tone talk. I don't know what that's all about. But at home, you just kind of, I don't know, you just kind of get lazy, and you just talk like you talk, and you just sort of hold your face like you hold your face, and you just sort of do what you do, you know? And there's, there's no malice. It's just, it's just laziness. At some point, you just kind of got to be who you are, and maybe I'm just not a very pleasant person in general, right? <laughs> and I'm so thankful for what the Lord has done in my life. And I'm thankful for what the Lord has done in, in her life. If there, if there was ever a couple that started out with the card stacked against them, I'm telling you, it was us. And there's not a thing that I have said or I'm about to say that, that has a touch of pride in it, because I'm telling you, we are here today by the grace of God. We've been married now for more than 17 years, and every day gets a little better than the day before. Got three kids, one of them 16. I mean, we, when we started, we, 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 didn't, we didn't have anything. I mean, we had less than nothing. People talk about being poor. You're not poor until you get hungry. When you are hungry and you can't do anything about it, then you have been poor. That's how we started out. And we thought we'd just make it on love, you know. I'll never forget the day Brandy called me. I was about 30 minutes from home at work, and she was screaming and crying so loudly, uncontrollably, that I could not make out what she had said. We had been married for about two months, and by the time I made it home, I was finally able to make out the words, I'm pregnant. <laughs> about 30 minutes of sobbing uncontrollably on the phone. And I'm just telling you, every step along the way, God has been so good to us. God has been so good to us. I can remember in the months leading up to our wedding how anxious I was. There, there, were more than a, there, there, there are more than a dozen divorces in our immediate families. Neither of us had ever seen marriage be successful, and I was scared to death 
that I would crash and burn. God had already called me to ministry, and even beyond the fear of crashing and burning was the fear that I would do something that would disqualify me from doing what I believed God to have clearly called me to do. I share this story all the time. It's kind of a backward, weird way of being encouraged, but I was listening to Focus on the Family with James Dobson, and here's what he said. James Dobson said, Some days I don't like Shirley, that's his wife, and some days Shirley doesn't like me. And I thought, well, bless God, if James Dobson doesn't like Shirley some days and Shirley doesn't like him, we might, we might make it. <laughs> and lo and behold, we have. And I'm telling you, it's just the grace of God in our life. It's just the grace of God in our life. Every family, every family needs Jesus. Now, I'm aware that this morning we're gathered together. There's probably some families who believe they've had Jesus, some families who maybe did have Jesus, but you've just drifted and things have gotten out of control on you. Listen, every day is a fight against the gravitational pull of the busyness, the hectic nature of this world against our spiritual devotional life, patience and long-suffering with our spouse or with our children. Every single day is a fight against the rat race to remain faithful within our marriage and within our family. Now, I don't mean within marriage that every day ought to be a fight resisting temptation outside of the marriage in a covenant-breaking kind of way. I just mean everything in this world is pulling you away from having the time and investing yourself in your marriage and family the way you really ought to be. Now, I'm hopeful that today or maybe Sundays that are yet to come in this series of messages will be kind of a line-in-the-sand moment for some folks to say, I'm done with all of that. I'm, I'm putting my mark here. And the world will encroach no further on my marriage and my family. I'm insisting from this moment forward, we're going to do it the Jesus way. There may be some of you here this morning who don't have a relationship with Jesus. There's never been a moment in your life when you made a decisive faith commitment to follow Jesus. And i got to tell you, Jesus is not going to enter into your family equation by accident. It will be a deliberate, purposeful faith commitment made on your part to entrust your soul and the well-being of your family to Jesus. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, used to use an illustration to bring to a conclusion his crusade meetings, and he would get out a glass, a, a clear glass that, that was empty, and he would hold it up before the people, and he would ask them how to get the air out of the glass. He would hold it up before them. And people would respond from the audience, and they would say things like, turn it upside down or vacuum it out or break it or something like that. And after a few responses had been offered from the congregation, he would pull out a pitcher of water from beneath the lectern and he would fill up the glass. And the, the point of the illustration is this. The only way to get the stale, dank, and lifeless air out of your family is to fill it up with something else. And his name, folks, is Jesus. My invitation to you this morning is to seek reconciliation and joy and gladness and peace within your family through the blood of Jesus Christ. You need only confess your sins before him, commit to turn away from the things of this world, believing in him to find a brand new start. Aren't you glad that Jesus is the God of second chances? I'm even happier that he's the God of a thousand chances and a thousand more after that. And for many of you today, 
Today, today needs to be the day to begin again. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the relationships, the marriages, and the families that you've entrusted to those here today. Thank you for the way that you're at work in our life. God, I, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of husbands and wives and children in the moments ahead, that you would burden us to be ever in prayer for those around us, to be consistent and steady, plotting faithfully day by day, tending to the well-being of our families as you'd have us to do. God, I, I pray that you would save some this morning for a, a calloused-hearted husband, and maybe a, a wife on, on, on the edge, on the verge of just throwing up her hands. God, I pray that you would break their heart over sin, that you would call them close and hold them fast. I, I pray, Lord, for a, a family that's been in turmoil, maybe longer than anyone has known, putting on a brave face, God, that you'd be pleased to restore to them the years the locusts have taken away. Might from this day forward, they enjoy the fruit of marriage and family the way you intend it. Might there come a time when the difficulties of things as they are now would be a distant memory. God, I pray for the children who are here in this room, God, that even now you'd prepare for them a godly husband or wife that loves Jesus with all of their heart and soul and strength and mind. I pray for single moms and single dads and grandparents who are raising grandchildren, God, that in each situation, each unique in its own right, God, that you would invade their hearts and homes by the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill them to the brim, God, that they might walk in joy and gladness of heart. Meet every, every need. Lord, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.